Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Leaders of the American Civil War. Today we continue our study of Union General and President Ulysses S. Grant. In this episode, we embark on a journey to explore a pivotal moment in Grant's and America's early war experience, the battle for Fort Donaldson. Capturing Fort Henry had been a real game-changer for the Union war effort. Halleck telegraphed Washington, quote, Fort Henry is ours. The flag of the Union is reestablished on the soil of Tennessee. It will never be removed, end quote. President Lincoln was thrilled to receive such news after the numerous setbacks in the East. Newspapers in the North responded ecstatically and predicted a quick and victorious end to the war. The South, on the other hand, was demoralized by this shocking loss, especially Albert Sidney Johnston. He could see his Kentucky and Tennessee positions being compromised, which made his next decision seem hasty and a bit confused. He ordered 12,000 men to Fort Donelson to hold it and keep it at all costs. Meanwhile, there was a huge cache of captured Confederate supplies at Fort Henry, that had to be itemized and managed. Because his troops were so green and inexperienced, Grant believed it necessary to warn them about plundering. He was actually forced to make some examples of certain officers if their men were found marauding about with stolen goods. Over time, his men would become accustomed to dealing with captured supplies, but this was a first for the Union soldiers in February of 1862, and they had much to learn. Now, as we discussed last time, Fort Donelson, the sister to Fort Henry, sat on the Cumberland River 12 miles due east of Fort Henry. It was positioned on the west bank of that river. So the 2,000 Confederates who had escaped Fort Henry to avoid capture easily entered the fort and to safety, at least for the moment. Grant, a man of few words and resolute determination, had set his eyes on Fort Donelson. In our journey through his biography, we find him meticulously planning his approach to the impending battle. The stakes were high. Success at Fort Donelson would not only secure vital waterways, but also pave the way for future Union advancement in the Western theater. Grant's men and the newspaper reporters who followed the army believed that taking Fort Donaldson would be an easy matter just as Fort Henry had been, but they were all in for a rude awakening. Unlike Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson stood on high ground, more than 100 feet above the river in spots, and extensive earthwork defenses and plenty of heavy guns which were staggered at different elevations. These guns had clear, unobstructed fields of fire down onto the Cumberland River. Grant sent the following telegram following the capture of Fort Henry. I shall take and destroy Fort Donaldson on the 8th and return to Fort Henry with the force employed, unless it looks feasible to occupy that place with a small force that could retreat easily to the main body. I shall regard it more in the light of an advance guard than as a permanent post. 
These words depict a lack of understanding of the difficulties which would lay ahead. However, they also depict depict a commander who was bent on holding and pressing the initiative against a Confederate enemy on the back foot. Now, Grant's commander, Henry Halleck, even in the flush of victory, was still more worried about what the Confederates might do to Grant rather than what Grant might do to them. He chose to regard Grant as a rival and threat and threat rather than as a valued extension of his own power. And as such, he secretly, secretly connived to replace Grant with another general. As part of his plan to replace Grant, Halleck had sent him another man who was to play a huge role in the activities of the Army of the Tennessee. That was Colonel James Birdsey McPherson. He was an engineer officer who was assigned to accompany the Fort Henry movement. McPherson's instructions from Halleck were to spy on Grant and to give him a confidential appraisal of his leadership of the Army. However, as we'll see in future episodes, McPherson, a brilliant and much-beloved officer, would go on to be one of Grant's most trusted and capable lieutenants for the rest of the war, or for most of the war. Meanwhile, the three wooden gunboats that had been part of the Fort Henry attack went up to the Tennessee and made a spectacular raid. Right after the fort had surrendered, the warship started up the Tennessee under Lieutenant Commander S.L. Phelps. The sailors seized the railroad bridge above the fort. This was an imposing structure 1,200 feet long, with several hundred feet of trestle work on either end and with a low-swinging drawbridge in the middle. Then Phelps kept going and took possession of a half-finished Confederate gunboat. Then he went all the way across Tennessee and made it to Florence, Alabama, at the foot of Muscle Shoals. The Federals were beginning to appreciate just how truly vulnerable the Confederates uh, were to attack from the waterways of the region. So, on the evening of February 11th, Grant held a rare council of war with his division commanders. These were Lew Wallace, John McClernand, and Charles Smith. All agreed with his plan to move immediately on Fort Donelson except for McClernand. Now, this would not be the last time that Grant and McClernand would be at odds odds with each other, as we'll see in future episodes. The next day, Grant's command began to make their way by land west from Fort Henry to Fort Donaldson. Meanwhile, Navy Commodore Foote traveled back to the Ohio River and then over the Cumberland River to support Grant with the naval bombardment of the fort from from the water. However, Fort Donaldson would be a much tougher nut to crack than Fort Henry, Henry, and the naval bombardment would not be sufficient to take the fort. Colonel McPherson had, had located two decent roads, it had been less affected by the heavy rains which the Union divisions could use for their 12-mile trek to the fort. These were the ridge and telegraph roads. The Union force made its way over land, leaving Wallace's division behind to, behind to garrison Fort Henry. 
Wallace was told to be ready to march if needed with a moment's notice. While Grant's men were marching, the weather was unreasonably warm. They found their overcoats and blankets to be an unnecessary burden, which they pitched by the roadside to line, to line their loads. They would prove to be another costly mistake made by green soldiers and their officers. While the overland march was taking place, Commodore Foote was leading troop transports down the Cumberland River uh, with, the, with reinforcements for the upcoming battle. On the 11th of the 12th, Grant's land force made it to the outskirts of the fort and took up position outside the, the, the earthworks the Confederates had erected there. The only opposition the Federals had experienced on the way was a roadblock set up by then-Colonel uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry troops along the road. The roadblock was easily overcome by Union infantry, but this would not be the last time Forrest got in the way of Grant's efforts in the Western Theater. When the Federal units got into place, they believed their role would be simply to wait and watch as the Navy bom- bombarded the fort into submission. That night was quiet and still, except for the occasional crackling of musket fire and the sound of Foote's naval guns announcing to uh, two Grant's force that they had made it to the fort. Meanwhile, Confederate General John B. Floyd was arriving at the fort with reinforcements from Virginia. Now, Floyd is one of the many interesting characters of this battle. He had been the governor of Virginia and most recently was the United States Secretary of War in the James Buchanan administration. Floyd was known for having used his official sworn office to secretly funnel thousands of arms and equipment to the southern states just before the war started. This, these treasonous actions led to his indictment on charges of conspiracy and fraud. However, by the time of his indictment, Floyd had already resigned his cabinet position and fled back to Virginia to become a general in the Confederate Army. It is argued by some that John B. Floyd was one of the most notorious traitors in American history. Like Benedict Arnold of the Revolutionary War, Floyd's actions were harmful and dishonorable on a grand scale. From his position of national trust as Secretary of War, Floyd dishonored himself in ways few others could or would by his actions while in the cabinet of hapless President James Buchanan. He would again dishonor himself here uh, at Fort Donelson and would be summarily removed from command by Confederate President Jefferson Davis, but more on this a bit later. Nevertheless, when Floyd arrived, he was the senior Confederate general at the fort. Even though he had no command experience and seasoned commanders like General Generals Gideon Pillow and Simon Bolivar Buckner were also present, the fact created command confusion for the Confederates and was a contributing factor to their eventual outcome of the battle. So on the morning of February 13th, the, naval, the Navy gunboat uh, car- 
Carondelet opened fire on, on the fort, which kicked off the battle. This was a brief bombardment, and the main reason for this war to create diversion, which allowed the group tra- ground troops to compete their encirclement of the fort. However, the batteries of Fort Dawson also opened fire and immediately made it known that they would put up fierce resistance to the naval gunboats. Now let's take a moment to our be- to get our bearings. Fort Donaldson was located on the Cumberland River, just south of the uh, of the Kentucky border in Tennessee. The town of do- Dover was an adjacent to the fort just up just up river, and both the fort and Dover were on a bend in the river as it turned from westward to north to northward flowing. Just like the Tennessee River, the Common River flowed north, northward from here and emptied into the, the Ohio River in the area of Paducah, Tucky, about 40 miles north. I'm using the past tense because these rivers are now dammed and the landscape had been changed somewhat since the Civil War. The Confederates were about 15,000 strong and growing. They had erected breastworks in, in a wide perimeter which covered both the fort and the town of Dover. Grant's Union force was positioned surrounding these breastworks and were spread thinly. It was just now that Grant began to realize the strength of the Confederate force he was, he was up again. So he ordered Lew Wallace to bring his division over over Fort Henry to join the Union force, which was growing with reinforcements from the river as well. At this point, he still believed Foote's gunboats could lead them to victory, but Foote wasn't sure after the beating they took at the previous fort. The lay of the land for Grant's Union army was as follows. Grant's Union force formed a wide semicircle around Fort Donelson and Dover breastworks. McClernand's division was positioned on the far right and would come under heavy fire soon. Smith's division was on the far left. Lew Wallace's division was in the center between McClernand and Smith. There were skirmishes around the fort and a few of them quite sharp, but things quieted down at dark with with the exception of sporadic picket fire. That night, the temperature plummeted to 12 degrees Fahrenheit. A veritable blizzard of freezing rain and snow whipped about the men on both sides of the breastworks. Fires were forbidden due to their proximity to the enemy, so the Union soldiers who had discarded their coats and blankets on the walk from Fort Henry suffered the most. It was a night of great suffering and hardship, recalled one Union brigade commander. The following day was St. Valentine's Day, February 14th, and Grant was up early and looking for action. He was behind schedule, and he wanted to attack the Confederates before further reinforcements could arrive from Bowling Green. He and his staff rode over to the, to the river on the far north or left downstream from the fort to confer with Commodore Foote about their next moves. Grant's plan, again, was simple and modeled on what he had done at Fort Henry. His force, now invested around the Confederate positions, would prevent their escape while Foote's gunboats pounded the fort from the river on the opposite side. However, what Grant could not have known was that the fort fort was now very formidable. The massive guns on the high bluffs were more than a match for the Union gunboats, 
And by now, Confederate Commander Albert Sidney Johnston had moved as many as 18,000 men into the fort and the surrounding area to hold it at all costs. This fort was the last foothold he had in Kentucky and western Tennessee, so he was desperate to hold it, perhaps foolishly so. While Grant was at the river landing, he directed reinforcement troops who were arriving from Cairo and Paducah to disembark and make their way to the Union positions around the fort. Their numbers were approaching 21,000 men, because by this point, Henry Halleck was directing all possible support troops to supply and supplies to Grant. Now is a good time to introduce another of the most important people in Grant's life. He would prove to be Grant's most trusted and important subordinate of the war and after the war. This is William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman had been assigned by Halleck to position himself at the mouth of the Cumberland River at Smithland, Kentucky. His job was to forward personnel and supplies to Grant, and he was doing this with all the energy and force of will that Sherman would come to be known for. Grant immediately saw that Sherman was the kind of man he could work with, and their partnership would become the thing of legend. About this time, Grant asked Foote to make a run at the fort and lobs in some shells to get the ball rolling. Foote wanted to wait for the arrival of his mortars, but Grant wanted him to get things moving right away, so Foote's little fleet of four ironclad gunboats trailed by two wooden ships got underway. Grant took position by the shore of the, of the river to watch as the gunboats approached the fort to make their attack. But this was not to be Fort Henry. The guns of Fort Donelson were more numerous and much better positioned uh, than those at Fort Henry had been. They rained down murderous fire on Foote's fleet, and they took a fearful pounding. The Confederates' aim, aim was accurate and deadly. They scored at least 40 direct hits on each of the ironclads, and Foote's boats were off the mark. The fleet lobbed many shells, but they, they did almost no damage to the fort. The badly battered boats began to drift down uh, downriver to the north, and they were soon out of action as Grant watched in dismay. Commodore Foote's foot was ironic, ironically injured during the battle. The Navy would continue to dominate the river by positioning themselves close to the fort, but they would not play a role in the battle from this point onward. Grant knew his army would be on their own to carry Fort Donelson. That night would bring another cruel snowstorm, which would make the job of the army that much more difficult. They continued to spread out in order to cover the wide perimeter of the fort, In particular, McClernand's division was on the far right and had the most difficult ground to cover. They were tasked with covering the swampland to the east of Dover, as well as the most important road leading southeast to Nashville. If the Confederates were to try and escape, it would be by using this road. The situation for the Confederates inside the fort on this night would also become difficult. As we mentioned, there were three commanders in the fort, the senior of which was John B. Floyd. Gideon Pillow was second in command, and Simon Bolivar Buckner was third. Buckner was the most capable of the three, and Grant had great affection and respect for him. 
Buckner had come to Grant's rescue years earlier in New York after Grant had resigned from the Army. However, he saw Floyd as a figurehead and a traitor, and he knew Pillow was a proud man but not much of a fighter. Buckner and Pillow knew their plight was becoming more hopeless each day as Grant was tying the noose, noose around the fort. They knew their only hope was to break out by staging a surprise attack on the Union right, which was held by McClellan's division. Early in the morning on the 15th, the injured Commodore Foot asked Grant to, to ride to his flagship, the St. Louis, for a conference to discuss the Navy's role going forward. Before leaving, Grant ordered Smith, Wallace, and McClernand to refrain from aggressive action in his absence. During the conference, Foot informed Grant that he wanted to take all his wounded ships back to Cairo for repairs. Grant didn't like this plan. He asked Foote to take only two ships and leave the rest to provide to provide provide support for the army as he was planning to attack the fort soon. He didn't have to wait long. As Grant was returning to shore, he was met by an anxious aide who was white with fear. As he recalled later, that morning the Confederates had staged a furious surprise attack on McClellan's position on the right of Grant's army. They had inflicted heavy losses and caused a full-blown Union retreat. The road to Nashville was now wide open. Now, Grant had missed this altogether because the direction of the wind had blown this incredible noise of battle away from his location on board Foote's flagship. When he returned, uh, he took personal charge. He rode seven miles over icy terrain to find McClernand and Wallace together in a clearing. McClernand's men were dazed and demoralized from having been hammered by the concentrated and effective Confederate attack on their position. They had fought gallantly until their ammo ran out, but suffered from a lack of leadership. McClernand's men were milling about aimlessly when Grant took matters in hand. He inspected the haversacks of some captured rebels and noticed that they had three days of cooked rations on them. He took this to mean that they were trying to escape and not trying to flank his army as some of the officers had believed. He gave orders for the damaged gunboats to lob shells at long range of the distra- to distract the enemy and provide moral support for his men. Then he rallied McClernand's troops, telling them, Fill your cartridge boxes, quick, and get in the line. The Union is trying to escape, and we must not per- permit them to do this. Well, this worked like a charm. He had read the situation perfectly, and he had kept his cool. He knew the Confederates must be disoriented and demoralized because they didn't break out when they had the perfect opportunity to do so. The rebel command situation inside the fort was so confused that it it became impossible for them to take advantage of this opportunity they had. It was Buckner's men who had attacked and made the huge hole in the Union position, but Pillow concluded a breakout was too risky and ordered Buckner's men back into the fort. Over Buckner's passionate protest, 
he orders, ordered his men back into the fort to retreat into the fort's uh, defensive positions, which threw away that morning's costly rebel victory. Grant's intuition told him immediately that the Confederate concentration of strength on the Union right, which had been so effective, also meant the rebels must be weak on the left. This is because they had moved so many people over to uh, break out on the right. He would exploit this fact, and in the next episode, we'll see he will make the rebels pay dearly. So we'll close this episode for now and conclude the battle in episode 36. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please take a moment to rate, review, and share the podcast with your friends. Also, please send any comments or questions to leadersof1865 at gmail.com. And if you're looking for a good cause to support, consider giving to AIM. That's A-I-M, Adults, Independent, and Motivated, a community of special needs adults in Austin, Texas. For more information, check the website at www.aimtx.org. Meanwhile, join me next time for episode 36, and we will continue our study of General Ulysses S. Grant. Mm-hmm.